Welcome to a special message with Michael Anthony at CourageMatters.com. Today, we have a special guest speaker, Janet Palacelli, wife of Michael Anthony, who spoke at a women's event at Grace Fellowship in York, Pennsylvania. So hold on to your seats as Janet teaches from God's Word. Well, we all have stories and we've all had to forgive others. We've all needed the forgiveness of others. But today we're going to pause and we're going to let God work in our lives and let him help us look deeply into our own hearts and see if there's anything here that he wants to show us. So let's pray. God, you said that your word is living and active, that it penetrates even to separating joints and marrow. And so, Lord, we ask you this morning that your word would go out with power, that you would use me to speak your words clearly as you would want them to be spoken, that you would use your words, Lord, to penetrate our hearts deeply, that there wouldn't be a single one of us here who is unchanged this morning when we leave, that we would feel your gentle touch, that we would sense your presence with us, Lord. Lord, that you would speak to us. Show us your perspective on the subject of forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a few weeks ago, as I was thinking through what I wanted to say this morning, I remembered something special that I have that I've saved since I was a really little kid, actually since first grade, and I knew that I wanted to show it to you. The only problem was that I had no idea where to find it. We moved from North Carolina, from Charlotte, North Carolina, up to York. And in the last year and a half or so before we moved away from Charlotte, we actually moved twice within the city of Charlotte. Um, Moving up here to York made three moves. And then after we had been here for a year, we moved again from our rental into into another house. And so that was four moves in the space of about two and a half years. So let me tell you, there are places in my house that are not well organized as a result of that. And one of those places is downstairs in our basement. We have an unfinished basement, and there's still quite a large stack of boxes there that needs to be sorted through. And that's one of my hopes for the summer is that I get a chance to actually go through those boxes and organize Well, I knew that the item that I had saved since I was a kid was somewhere in those boxes. And I thought, well, there's no way that I can show that to you guys today. Maybe at the end of the summer when I've gone through the boxes, I would have found it and that would be good timing to show that. But there's no way right now that I can find that. So I put that out of my head. But the next morning when I woke up, I woke up with the image of that item in my head. I hadn't seen it in years, but I could picture it so very clearly, and I just thought, well, I'm going to give it a try. I'll be able to tell, you know, within a few minutes, probably, if this is going to be a project that takes, you know, the next three weeks of my life, or if I can get this done this morning. So I went downstairs, and the first thing that I noticed was a big water stain on the floor, and I had forgotten that a couple of days earlier, it had rained really, really hard, and we had had our first leak in our basement. 
basement. We didn't have a problem with that before, but I think there's something going wrong with the door leading to the outside, and we had had a leak. And Mike had found it a couple days earlier, and he had told me about it, but I hadn't been down there since then. So I noticed that there's this big water stain on the floor. And then the second thing I noticed was that Mike, in finding that leak a couple days earlier, had moved some things so that they wouldn't get wet. So the large stack of boxes had been divided now, and instead of being one big pile, there was now one isolated stack of boxes kind of sitting in the center of the room. So I thought, well, that's convenient. I'll just start right here. It's one little stack of boxes. I don't have to climb over anything. I don't have to lift anything. I'm just going to start right here. So it was a stack about this high. The boxes underneath, four or five boxes, were you know the cardboard boxes that you typically move with. And the one on the top was a plastic, you know, the clear plastic bins. So as I walked toward it, I could immediately see what was in that top bin. And I saw that it was filled with stuff from my childhood that I had saved. That was not the only box that was filled with stuff from my childhood, so it wasn't a given that that was going to be the box that it was in, but it definitely seemed like a good place to start. So I was excited about that box, and I made a mental note, get myself more plastic bins for when I do my organizing this summer. (laughs) So I went over to it, and I lifted off the lid, And I know you guys will believe this because this is how God works. But when I lifted off the lid, the exact thing that I had pictured in my mind, it was small, it was yellow, I could picture it, that exact thing was on the top. I mean the very top, the very top item in that box. That was it. So I have it here to show you guys today. Well, most of you know that I grew up on the West Coast. First, I was in um, British Columbia and Canada, and then I ended up in Oregon. Um, So I was born in Vancouver. You've probably heard of it. The Winter Olympics were held there in 2010. And um, my parents were not French speakers, but they decided that when my sister and brothers and I came to be school-aged, that they would like for us to have the opportunity to become bilingual. So they put us in a French school. Now, Vancouver, if you know anything about that city, is a very large city. It's a little bit like the New York of the U.S. And it's one of the biggest cities in Canada. So you can find any kind of educational opportunity that you might want there. So it wasn't too far from our house that they found a nice big French elementary school for us all to attend. So I attended there for a little bit, but then it wasn't too long before we moved. I was only six and a half when we moved from Vancouver, and we moved to about 500 miles north of there to a smaller town, much smaller town, called Prince George. Well, in Prince George, you did not have the same kind of educational opportunities as in Vancouver. And so my parents did what they could to find a similar opportunity for us there. And it turned out that there was one school in the whole city um, that was a French school, and it was in its very first year. So there were French speakers, um, French speaking people who had ended up in Prince George from all different parts of the country, and they were wanting to start a French school. And so it was in its very first year. And in fact, um, the entire school was comprised of 12 students. 
So um, my sister, my two brothers and I were enrolled. Actually, at that point, my youngest brother was not school-aged yet. So it was my sister and my brother and I. So with the three of us, there was a whopping 15 kids in that class. And that was the whole school. So the whole school was in one classroom. It was K through 7. And my teacher was Mrs. Bergeron. And Mrs. Bergeron had um, grouped the desks um, according to grade. So like the kindergarten cluster was, was five desks. And I think there was one desk for the one seventh grader. So I was in first grade. And in first grade, before I got there, there was a little cluster of three desks. And um, they were in a little triangle. And that little triangle was made up of two boys and one girl, Veronica Bergeron. Veronica Bergeron was the daughter of Mrs. Bergeron, my teacher. And she was the only girl in first grade. So when I got there, and that little triangle was made into an even square with two boys and two girls now, she did not like it. So before she even got to know me at all, talked to me at all, she already knew she did not like me. And she was very mean to me. And I did what probably thousands of six-year-olds over the course of history have done when someone has been mean to them at school. I went home crying to my mother. Well, it wasn't too long after that, and my mom talked to her mom, Mrs. Bergeron, and it wasn't too long after that that I came to school one day and found this on my desk. So I wanted to read it to you right now. So you can see it better. It's there up on the screen. It says, Dear Janet, I'm sorry for calling you names like dumb and stupid. <laughs> From now on, I'll be nice to you. I'm not very smart for doing bad things like that. You and I, we could make new friends. We could play with our friends together. One day, maybe you or I, we could go to each other's house. From your friend, Veronica. I wanted to share that letter with you and this whole story, kind of because of the, the innocence of it and the sweetness of it. I don't actually remember, to be honest with you, exactly what happened after I first read that letter. I don't remember any sort of conversation or, you know, working out and reconciling. I don't remember that at all. Um, maybe the fact that I don't remember that at all means that it went pretty easily. Um, what I do know is that after that we became best friends. And Veronica and I were best friends all the way through school. We both had the same long brown hair. We both had the same favorite books and literary characters. We both loved to do the same things at recess. And we were the best of friends. That story is special to me because, and that letter, because of the sweet innocence of it and the honesty and the transparency, the humility of it. And unfortunately, the older that we get, most of our stories don't end like that. And we don't see any longer that same kind of humility and transparency. It shows me a couple of things right off the bat about our topic of forgiveness that we're talking about this morning. First of all, you remember that in that story, we were six. We were six years old. And age does make a difference. And I just want to encourage you that if you have any kids in your life, if you have your own kids, if you've got neighbor kids, if you've got grandkids, if you teach kids in Sunday school or school, um, however you know kids, 
see if you can be an influence on them in this area and help them to learn the invaluable skill of apologizing quickly and forgiving quickly. My kids have been taught not to say it's okay when someone apologizes to them because it's not okay when somebody hurts us, but they've been taught to say, I forgive you. And sometimes in our house, one of our boys will say, but I'm not ready to forgive yet. Can you just give me a few minutes? And, um, and we allow them to take that few minutes, of course, but we don't let them go off and do something else until they're ready and forget about it. We have them sit down quietly somewhere with the Lord and work through that until they can get to that point before moving on with their life. And I think it's something that we would all have benefited from had we been taught this when we were kids. So do the same for yours and the kids in your life. The second thing in that story, right off the bat, is that my friend apologized. And apologies always make forgiveness easier, don't they? But apologies don't always happen. And we saw that in some of the video testimonies this morning. Apologies don't always happen. And just because they don't does not give me the right to withhold my forgiveness. When I was a little girl in Sunday school, I learned lots of different Bible stories. In fact, I was there so often at Sunday school. My parents were so faithful to take us to Sunday school every week that my brothers and sister and I would often get the perfect attendance award they used to give out in Sunday school. So by the time I graduated from high school, I knew a lot of Bible stories. Somehow, though, I had come away with the impression that it was just kind of a bunch of separate stories, all by the same author, and they're all, they're all about God in some way, but they're all kind of a bunch of different stories. Something like this book. It's called The Best of Louisa May Alcott, and it's a compilation of her short stories. It has her probably most famous one in there, Little Women. It has Little Men. It has a bunch of other short stories. But it's all just a compilation of short stories by the same author, and really that's very similar to how I saw the Bible. Now, it wasn't until I was in college and was really in a more concentrated way reading the Bible for myself and read the book of Hebrews that I started to see the Bible as one whole, one whole message and not separate little stories. I attended various events growing up, too where the Gideons were handing out New Testaments. And this is the first one that I was ever given when I went to an event. I was probably eight or nine when I got this one. And maybe you have one too from something that you attended. And I really thought then that, you know, the Old Testament is, is interesting, of course, and it's got great stories and it's important. But the New Testament is really all we need to know. When I was in college... Um, the Billy Graham crusade came through our town and a lot of us as college students got to go and help out with it. And it was a great blessing to be a part of that. And I noticed something interesting. They didn't even give out the New Testament. They actually just gave out the Gospel of John. And then I really thought, wow, well, really all we need is the Gospel. We just need to hear the good news about Jesus as told in the Gospel of John and we need to give our lives to the Lord, and that's really all there is. The rest of it is really not that important. But as I said, when I started to really read the Bible for myself, and I read the book of Hebrews for the first time from beginning to end, that's when I realized that the Bible is not two separate parts or a bunch of separate parts, 
it's one whole. And the Old Testament is not outdated, and the New Testament is new and what we need now. It all goes together. The New Testament is not where the gospel is introduced, but it's where the gospel is fulfilled, that it was actually introduced in the Old Testament, and then the New Testament tells how it was fulfilled in Jesus. So that's kind of what we're talking about this morning, how the whole Bible is not all parts of, um, you know, a bunch of different parts, but it's like pieces of a puzzle that come together to make a whole. To really understand what took place on the cross, and we've been talking a lot about it, especially in the last couple of weeks with Easter, and to really understand what took place on the cross and what Jesus did, we do need to understand what came before. So let's look in your Bibles, if you have them, at the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is at the beginning of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And the title Leviticus means relating to the Levites. So it's about the Levites. The Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were the ones that God had appointed as priests. So the book of Leviticus, if you were to read it from beginning to end, um, is mostly about the service of worship at the temple and what the priests had to do, what the sacrifices looked like that they had to perform and stuff like that. Today we're going to start by looking at the sin offering that the priests were required to make on behalf of the people of Israel. So let's turn to Leviticus 16.34. Leviticus 16.34. It says, this is to be a lasting ordinance or law for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of Israel. So once a year, only once a year, payment had to be made for the forgiveness of all the people's sins. So I would say that was an important day. Before this offering could be made, the blood of a goat had to be sprinkled on nearly everything in the temple, including the altar and even on Aaron and his sons. Aaron, you might remember, he was Moses' brother, and he was appointed the very first high priest in Israel. So they had to sprinkle the blood of goats on everything in the temple, including the altar and themselves. And in this way, the priests were cleansed and dedicated for service to the Lord. Next, the high priest under the old covenant had to offer sacrifices for the sins of himself and his whole household. So he had to get himself ready, first by sprinkling the blood, then by offering sacrifices for his own sins and the sins of his household. And then he would enter the most holy place, or the holy of holies. That was just once a year on the Day of Atonement, which is today called Yom Kippur. Now, the Holy of Holies, you probably are aware, was the inner room, the most inner room of the temple, or the tabernacle. And it was separated from the rest of the temple by a tall, thick curtain, or veil. And it was in here that God's very presence would dwell. During the 40 years that the Israelites wandered in the desert, you remember that there was a pillar of cloud that went in front of them in the daytime, and then there was a pillar of fire that went in front of them at nighttime, and that, was, that showed them where they were to go. They followed God's presence. Well, whenever they would stop and set up the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, that pillar of cloud in the daytime or the pillar of fire at night would stop, and it would rest over the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And that symbolizes the presence of God there. 
So the high priest was the only one who could enter into that holy of holies, and only after he had done the things I described, preparing himself to go in, and only once a year. And the Bible says that if anybody else went in, he would die. So that's pretty serious. So the priest, in doing all of these things, was first recognizing his own sins and his personal need. God was graciously forgiving him, and then he could offer the sacrifices for the rest of the people. But why was blood necessary? I always wondered that when I was little, and as I got older, I understood a little bit better. But sometimes I think we still don't completely understand. Why was blood necessary for this? So turn to chapter 17, verse 11 in Leviticus. Chapter 17, verse 11. God tells the Israelites here, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Blood is what gives life to the body. The blood of any creature poured out means a life given up, right? It's death. But why did a life have to be given up? I still don't understand. It's the exchange of life principle. It's a life for a life. A blood sacrifice, so a life sacrifice, had to be made for two reasons. First, because the Israelites needed to understand, and we need to understand, the weightiness of sin and its utterly destructive nature, in that it tears us away from God. God is a perfect God, a holy God, in whom there's no darkness at all. So sin can't dwell with him. So as long as we have that, we can't dwell with God. Sin separates us from God. As the symbol of life, the blood represented the gift of a new life, a clean and a fresh start. This was forgiveness. And by the way, that's not the first time we see this in Scripture. We actually see this at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve covered themselves with leaves, God came and he changed their covering to animal skins. And he was saying, I'm taking a life to cover your life. It's a life for a life, that exchange of life principle. So let's look now at how the book of Hebrews ties the Old Testament and the New Testament together. Let's start in chapter 9, verse 22. Turn there if you want to, but it is also up on the screen. Hebrews 9.22 says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Let's turn back one page probably in your Bibles to chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We don't have priests in temples today making these sacrifices on our behalf. And even in Jerusalem, the Jews don't have priests currently making those sacrifices for them. Let's read Hebrews 7, 23 to 28. It says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. They died, and that prevented them from continuing in office, and somebody else had to take over after them. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. 
one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, for his own, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Jesus did not have to confess his sin because he was without sin. He did not have to offer sacrifices for himself first, but he could freely enter the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. This is why he's called the mediator of a new covenant. It's a new covenant now. It's not the old covenant anymore. Because of his shed blood, his death, he can give us life. And that is the exchange of life principle, the exchange of one life for a life. Turn ahead just a couple of chapters, back to Hebrews 9. We were in Hebrews 9 just a minute ago. Turn back there, and we're going to start in verse 12 this time. This whole passage is so great and so clear, so clearly gives us a picture of what happened um, when Jesus took over as our great high priest. And I would encourage you to read that on your own later. But in the interest of time, we're just going to read a couple of those verses. Verse 12 says, He, Jesus, did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood having obtained eternal redemption. Now jump down to verse 16 with me. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. And we saw that and we heard about that a little bit in Giz's testimony this morning, didn't we? A will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. So that's another clear explanation of why blood was necessary. There had to be death for that to take place. Verse 22, again, we read it before, says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So now let's jump down to verse 25. Christ did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but that's not how it worked, is it? But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. To do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. The blood atonement was completed by Jesus on the cross. God had intended that the people would be familiar with the sacrificial system laid out in the book of Leviticus that we've, that we've just seen in the Levitical system that we've just looked at. They would have had an understanding of the significance of blood and the need for a life-for-a-life life sacrifice. They would have understood that Jesus' death on the cross fulfilled that. Now consider the significance of the following occurrence at the time, at the very moment of Jesus' death. Matthew 27, 51 says, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's Matthew 27, 51. 
At that moment, that very moment of Jesus' death, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain that they're talking about was the one that had been put in place to separate the Holy of Holies and God's presence from the rest of the temple. The Israelites did not have the freedom to go in there. Their high priest had to represent them and go in there by himself. Now this curtain had been torn in two. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.